Welcome to the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, where every death had a life and every life had a story. My name is Jenny Johnson. Hello, and I'm Diane Hartshorn on this very, very cold Tuesday evening. It is very cold today, although I will say I am glad. I mean, we're getting some snow here in Colorado, Mm -hmm. but my folks live in like near Lincoln, Nebraska, in the center of Nebraska. They've gotten 16 inches of snow in the last like 24 hours. Oh my goodness. And I was told they are expecting another two to three inches tonight. So I'm glad I'm not there tonight. No offense to all of you in Nebraska. I love you, but I'm not missing that kind of snow. (laughs) Yeah, because I had a friend who moved from here to Arizona to get out of the snow, and it snowed a little bit down there. So I end here with this little meme of a little dog laughing. So Oh, that's hilarious. I saw a picture on Facebook of somebody that somebody else had posted this morning of snow somewhere in California today. And so we thought that was really funny because there was just snow everywhere. So I would say we're getting like the least amount of it compared to where everybody else in the country seems to be getting their snow. Yeah, exactly. Nope. We're just staying in tonight. We'll stay bundled up. I think we, I think I cheated. I did punch the heater up a degree because it was chilly. Oh, I plugged my electric blanket in before I went to bed. Oh, see. Before I go to bed. My son always steals mine. It's on his bed right now. We have one. Actually, we have two, but I think we lost the, the like the cord to plug the one in. Oh, yeah. But the other one, he keeps swiping. You need to buy, buy one and hide it. I know, right? <laughs> I want to take just a second before we get into the episode today. So today... Diane is kindly indulging me in my love for Salem, Massachusetts. And so our episode revolves around the city of Salem. So I just want to thank the New England Historical Society. A lot of the research for this episode came from their website and specifically from an article they had posted to their website. And that, of course, will be linked in the show notes. So if you're curious about what we read and where a lot of this information came from, it came from them, but they were extremely helpful in putting this particular episode together, because the topic that we are going to talk about today is not one that if you go to Salem and you take the tours, even the historical tours and stuff, it gets mentioned, but they don't go into great detail on it. So we're going to go into a little bit more detail on this today. So I just wanted to give that shout out to the New England Historical Society before we get started. Today, we are going to be talking about two cemeteries, and actually, it's going to be three cemeteries in Massachusetts. One is in Danvers, and the other two are in the neighboring community of Salem. The story we will be sharing with you today is that of the Great Salem Fire of 1914. I know I've mentioned it before, but Salem is my favorite place in the whole world to visit, and I've been wanting to do an episode based on some of its cemeteries since we began the podcast. However, it was important to me to share a story that goes beyond the witch history of the city. That, of course, is what made me want to visit there initially, But there is so, so much more to Salem and the surrounding area. Plus, there are already several podcasts that have devoted episodes to the topic of the 1692 witch trials. So I will make sure to link them in the show notes in case you are interested in listening to those. Although there is a legend connected with the witch trials that is sometimes linked to the Great Fire, and we will talk about that later in this episode. So let's begin, however, by visiting Walnut Grove Cemetery in Danvers, Massachusetts. For those who've never visited the area, Danvers is about five miles from Salem, going further inland from the ocean. When it was originally settled, it was called Salem Village, while what we know as Salem today was called Salem Town. There are still over a dozen houses in Danvers 
dating from the 1600s. Being independent from Salem in 1752, Danvers witnessed the development of various neighborhood villages, each having its era of prominence and possessing a unique character. The Walnut Grove Cemetery website says that in May of 1843, Henry Fowler called upon the citizens of Danvers to establish a new cemetery in what was then called North Danvers. The initial 14 acres of land was purchased from Judge Samuel Putnam of Danvers. By October 1843, the first board of trustees was formed and the cemetery was incorporated. It was initially named Sylvan Rest, but on June 15, 1844, it was renamed Walnut Grove Cemetery. On June 22, 1844, more than 2,000 townspeople of Danvers gathered to observe the consecration of Walnut Grove as a cemetery. A month later, the first burial took place. Since that time, thousands of local residents have chosen Walnut Grove as their final resting place because of its natural beauty, its prominence in Danvers, and its place in histories. Among the many veterans and significant townspeople interred there are heroes of the Revolutionary War, Civil War, and even a Medal of Honor recipient. Buried in Section C, Lot Number 184, lies the remains of Samuel P. Withy, who was one of the victims of the Great Fire of Salem. At the time of his death, he was a veterinarian. As a young man, he served in the Union Army in the Civil War from July 29, 1862 until July 16, 1865. He was enlisted in B Company of the Massachusetts 40th Regiment and fought at the Siege of Suffolk, the Second Battle of Charleston Harbor, the Battle of Ulsti, the Battle of Cedar Creek, the Bermuda Hundred Campaign, the Battle of Proctor's Creek, the Battle of Cold Harbor, and the Siege of Petersburg. Unfortunately, I was unable to locate a photo of his gravestone, so I'm unable to provide a description of it to you. There were two others who died as a direct result of the fire, Joseph J. Pickering and James Hossman, but I was unable to locate burial records for either of these gentlemen. According to the New England Historical Society, the Great Salem Fire of 1914 was one of the last great urban fires of the era. It followed the Portland Maine Fire of 1866, the Chicago Fire of 1871, the Boston Fire of 1872, and the Chelsea, Massachusetts Fire of 1906. The conflagration cut a swath a half mile wide and a mile and a half long through the city. The firestone gobbled up 1,376 buildings, leaving homeless 18,000 people, nearly half of Salem's population. It destroyed so many businesses that 10,000 people lost their jobs. For many years leading up to 1914, Salem was under constant threat of catching fire. Many of the structures were wooden and were built close together. The city's growth at the turn of the century made it more so. At the time, Salem was one of the busiest shipping ports in the world and became home to immigrant populations from Ireland, Italy, Poland, and French Canada. By 1910, the population was roughly 53,000 people. Many of the immigrant communities lived in tight quarters, one of them being the French La Pointe. For years before the fire broke out, selectman Franklin Wentworth warned it would happen. 
He wrote in a March 29, 1910 Salem Evening News article that the city was in danger of burning down. The city had too many combustible roofs, he argued. The fire began on the afternoon of June 25, 1914, on a very hot, very dry, and very windy day. It started at the Corn Leather Company. It is believed that rays of sunlight through a window may have set a pile of celluloid on fire. Celluloid is the trade name for a plastic that was widely used in the 1800s and early to mid-1900s to make pins, buttons, fountain pens, toys, dolls, and many other now collectible products. The fire then spread to barrels of acetone, alcohol, and sheepskins. It moved up an elevator shaft to the third floor of the factory. The floor was saturated with more flammable substances. The first alarm went off at 1.37 p.m. The fire spread so quickly, a general alarm sounded four minutes later and terrified corn workers had to run for their lives from the burning building. Due to the windy, dry conditions, the fire quickly spread both east and west of the factory, destroying everything in its path. It also crossed the street and proceeded to devour another factory and a half a block of brick buildings. It swept down Boston Street and quickly doomed the entire district. Fire alarm boxes were pulled right and left as the fire swept through Salem. Historic Lafayette Street, one of the most beautiful in the city, was ravaged. A change in wind direction spared Chestnut Street and the McIntyre Historic District. 90% of Salem's historic structures were lucky and escaped that inferno. The city's entire French neighborhood was destroyed, including the newly built St. Joseph's Church. Salem's Franco-American population dropped to 5,000 from 15,000 after that fire. Firefighters from 21 communities came to help. Firemen soaked rugs and clothing in the ocean and laid them across roofs to prevent the fire from spreading. Then homes were purposely dynamited to stop the fire in its path. Of course, the firefighters in 1914 didn't have the same protective gear that modern firefighters have today. Many were forced to lay in puddles of water to relieve themselves from the overwhelming heat. Some even passed out while working. Several people tried to save what they could from their homes. One woman grabbed items and took them to her husband's place of business. When that place was threatened, she had the safe opened and put in what she most desired to save. The place was not burned, and the next day, upon opening the safe, they found the family Bible, a pair of silk stockings, and her house slippers. Doesn't sound like she was thinking very well, poor thing. <laughs> I kind of have that feeling with a lot of what was saved during this fire. Mm-hmm. Another woman gave her husband two hat boxes to take to a safe place. In one were his two best suits, and the other two Angora kittens. Down in the crush near the dock, he made up his mind to carry the kittens no further, so he threw one of the hat boxes into the sea. When he arrived where he was to leave the hat boxes, he found he had thrown overboard his two suits and carry the kittens to safety instead. I think it serves him right. I am glad that the kittens were saved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, the suits, they can be replaced. I'm glad the kittens made it. One man rushed into his burning home, determined to save at least one thing. When he emerged from the smoke and flames, he discovered he had rescued a watermelon. 
Another man discovered that all he had managed to save was a revolver, a razor, and a pair of blue glasses. His wife had grabbed a large envelope, which they later discovered contained their daughter's hair combs. Another woman went into her home when it was burning and brought out from her ice chest a small piece of ice. I would say I think people were panicking. Just a little. (laughs) There was also several stories of spark chasers, everyday folks who did what they could to help prevent fires spreading. Billy Johnson, an ex-driver in the fire department, was passing a house on Margin Street and noticed a fire on the roof. He went in and told the woman her roof was on fire. She said, what can I do with no water in the faucet? Billy inquired if she had tried the hot water tank. She admitted she had not. Billy drew some water and went up on the roof. Not being able to put it entirely out that way, he got the axe, cut a hole in the roof, pulled off the shingles, and the house remained standing. A lot easier to repair just one small section of the roof than replace the whole house. Exactly. Ed Holt, a railroad conductor, was working on the train on the 25th. His neighbor, knowing he was not home, used a garden hose to keep the side of Ed's house that was near the fire wet throughout the day. Many passersby told the neighbor it was a lost cause, but he persisted and managed to save Ed's house. Another man did his part in stopping the fire reaching Broad Street from Hawthorne, watching for hours a house where he had been working, putting out sparks and keeping the roof wet. Even with such vigilant folks as these, many more homes were destroyed and hundreds were left homeless. Families sought refuge in public spaces, bringing what household goods they could save to the Salem Common, the Salem Willows, Forest River Park, and the Broad Street Cemetery. These areas became home for many weeks to tent cities. Oddly, the story of the fire spread like wildfire, and it's estimated that at least one million people came to Salem in the afterdays to see the ruins of the once beautiful and bustling seaport. Many of the city's factories and other businesses burned as well. Hundreds of people, especially immigrants, were not only burned out of their homes, but they were also out of work. It took 13 hours to put out most of the fire. Three weeks later, Pickering's coal pile and Ropes's hay were still burning. Gone were factories, churches, homes, barns, schools, bridges, wharves, coal piles, and shops. The National Guard set up emergency aid stations during the fire. The Salem Armory became relief headquarters and clearinghouse for fire victims. Food and clothing were distributed. The first business to reopen was a tent barber shop on Boston Street. Guardsmen handed out the food, issuing about 6,000 rations a day in bread lines by the tent cities. Within a year of the Salem fire, the city had issued 353 permits for buildings in the burned-over district. Most were one- and two-family dwellings. Salem adopted a new building code requiring fireproof construction, widened streets, and planted hundreds of shade trees. Salem never rebuilt its manufacturing base to its previous size. One other part of Salem that suffered damage from the fire was the old Burying Point, also known as a Charter Street Cemetery. This cemetery is the oldest cemetery in Salem, as well as one of the oldest cemeteries in the U.S. It is the final resting place for many of Salem's most notable individuals and families. Some of these include Judge John Hawthorne, who was the most infamous judge of the Salem Witch Trials, 
and the great-grandfather of author Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nathaniel was so disgusted by his great-grandfather's role in the witch trials that he changed the spelling of his last name by adding a W in the middle. Here, too, you will find one of my favorite graves in the cemetery, that of Nathaniel Mather. Nathaniel Mather, whose father was Reverend Increase Mather and brother was Reverend Cotton Mather, is interred here. And all those Mathers had a big to do with not only the witch trials, but also the settling of Boston and all kinds of stuff. They were important people. His grave is to the far right of the cemetery near the fence behind the Grimshaw house. Nathaniel was born in Boston in 1669. He died in 1688, four years before the witchcraft trials would engulf his brother, Salem, and the colony. He was only 19 years old. The engraving on his headstone reads, an aged person who has seen but 19 winters in the world. Another significant burial in the cemetery is that of Samuel McIntyre, the architect who designed many of the federal style buildings in and around Salem. His family was quite proud of him as his headstone also says. He was distinguished for genius in architecture, sculpture and music. Modest and sweet manners rendered him pleasing, industry and integrity respectable. He professed the religion of Jesus in his entrance into manly life and proved its excellence by virtuous principle and unblemished conduct. Among the headstones, you can still find some that show charring left from the great fire. One such stone is that of John Crowningshield, who died in 1767. There is an inscription on the bottom of his stone that reads, Broken in the Great Salem Fire, June 1914, Restored by Descendants in 1918. According to Betty Bouchard in her book, Our Silent Neighbors, A Study of Gravestones in the Old Salem Area, Mr. Crowningshield's stone was once again in need of repair as it was broken in pieces. This was in 2000, so I am not entirely sure if it is in, if it has been repaired or if it still even exists. And I did try looking through my photos I have of the cemetery, but I don't have that one that I'm aware of. So I couldn't find out for sure. Hopefully we can find out and maybe it's... I know, I'm hoping if you're from Salem and you're listening and you happen to know, let us know. I, I'm curious to know if that one's still there, um, but I do have some photos that show some charring from the fire on some other headstones. So those will be on the website. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Just outside the wall of the old burying point, you will find the Salem Witch Trial Memorial. The Witch Trials Memorial was dedicated by Nobel laureate Ellie Weissel in August of 1992 as part of the Witch Trials 300th anniversary. The design was selected in an international competition that received 246 entries. The winning design by Maggie Smith, not the Maggie Smith you may be thinking of. Right, not of Harry Potter fame. <laughs> and James Cutler was inspired by the Vietnam Memorial. The memorial consists of 20 granite benches cantilevered from a low stone wall surrounding an area adjoining the old burying point. The benches are inscribed with the name of the accused and the means and date of execution. Researching this episode made me think about our recent episode with Ryan and Christine, who are part of the Louisiana Cemetery Task Force. Sadly, disasters can affect cemeteries anywhere at any time. 
Of course, it's always more important to take care of the living in the immediate aftermath, but it is important to care for the dead once the cleanup begins. It's evident that in 1918, some efforts were made to restore damage done in the old burying point due to the Great Fire. Salem was once again proving its resiliency as a community. It did not go back to what it had been, but it adapted to what it was and created a new future for itself, just as it has done many times over the centuries. I believe that Salem is truly one of those communities who learn from their past and strive to constantly make a better tomorrow for themselves and those who are welcomed to its shores. And also, I did say there's three cemeteries mentioned in here. And the other one is the Broad Street Cemetery, where they had some people taking refuge from the fire for a while and some tents in there. The thing that's connected to that, that I said is kind of connected to the witch trials. So the Broad Street Cemetery is supposedly where you sometimes see the ghost of Giles Corey, who is one of the victims of the Salem witch trials. And the legend about him is that if you see him, then a great tragedy is going to follow. And there are claims that he was seen the night before this particular fire broke out. And so, you know, which makes me think the Broad Street Cemetery would not be the one cemetery I'd want to take refuge in after such a thing. But, you know, I don't know if that was a rumor back in 1914 when this happened. If that's a later rumor, I don't know when the rumors about Giles Corey even came to be. Um, But that is, so that's technically a third cemetery we mentioned in this episode. We don't get into detail, um, but that is the connection between the witch trials and the Great Fire of Salem. Is that? I don't know. Can you imagine being burned out of your home and you're like camping out in a cemetery? Yeah, the haunted one. A haunted one. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there's actually ghost stories related to a lot of the cemeteries in Salem. I don't really know them, but that is the one that everybody seems to know about. And I have heard on tours when I've been on tours that supposedly his ghost was seen right before that fire took place. So interesting. And with that, that is all we have for you today. As always, we hope this may inspire you to go and research these stories further for yourself. You can start by going to the show notes on our website at theordinaryextraordinarycemetery.com, where you will find the links we use to research this and all our episodes. We have also included links to some other podcasts that specifically deal with the Salem witch trials in case you would like to know more about them. Also, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. If you do not use either of those services, you can also leave a review directly on our website, or you can visit us on our social media pages, Facebook and Instagram at Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery, or on Twitter at Ord Extra Sim. And we would also be extremely grateful if you would share us with your family and friends. Thank you again for listening. Until we meet again.